Um, you're going to find out if I'm jet lagged or not. I did pretty well in the first service, but I feel the, uh, that descending zoning coming, you know, we got back last night. I don't know. Nancy drove. I think it was sometime around 11 and, um, it's just crazy to travel. I circumvented the whole earth. First time I've done that, went all the way around and had such a great time in India teaching uh, pastors and in Cambodia teaching pastors as well. Okay, the last year and a half we have spent talking about this house that God is building. What does it look like? Okay, we started in Leviticus. For those of you that are visitors, yes, we did start there and looked at Leviticus as a blueprint that describes the people of God, which is fulfilled in the New Testament when the Holy Spirit comes. A blueprint is just a piece of paper, and you need a builder to build a house. And so Paul can talk about we're a spiritual house, and Peter as well. We're a spiritual temple, we're a spiritual building, and it's being built up. And that's what happened at Pentecost, is that the builder showed up. And so everything talked about in Leviticus is talked about again in the New Testament. So we spent all last year in the Old Testament. This year we went through Ephesians and we took a look at this house that's growing. So this fall, what I want to do, I want to talk about the beauty of Jesus, okay? Because I want to, I want to change the story a little bit now, and I want to take a look at who we are, who we are today, and who we are becoming in the future. So it's going to be done a little bit different. We're going to take a look at Philippians, but not the way you're used to studying it. We're going to look at Philippians from the inside out. Okay, and I'll tell you what I mean by that in just a moment. If you, if you want a picture, you want a description of who God is, the clearest description is in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, thank thankfulness, self-control. One fruit, singular, comprised of all these character qualities. God can only give out of who he is, and that's really one of the clearest pictures of who God is. He's a loving God. He's a joyful God. Um, Psalm 2, he laughs at the nations. He laughs at the nations. And so I picture God as constantly up there just laughing at us in our uh, feeble attempts to to worship him and love him. And I think he, he just chuckles with joy watching us to do that. You know, if you think about worship, we're in this time zone. I just came from a time zone about 12 hours and 15 minutes or 30 minutes. I don't know. Different than ours. So and my body says it's almost time to, it's past time to go to bed. So as you go west, you go around the earth. You had an hour each way. So every hour, there's somebody worshiping God and praying. And so the earth just has this, this group of people all around the planet at different times that are doing that. So my friends in Cambodia and India and Nepal, they're all in bed now. But they weren't very long ago, and they were worshiping the Lord and praising him. Now it's our turn. So I just think God sits back and smiles. It was very popular back last century, early last century and earlier than that, to, to talk about uh, God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. I remember even as a boy growing up with that as a boy. He's a God of wrath, the Old Testament, a God of grace in the New Testament. Uh, I now reject that because uh, that just makes him bipolar, to be honest with you. 
God is always a God of joy. So if you're, if you're discriminating, when you look at these Old Testament passages, what you discover is that his wrath is, is vented against evil people. Okay, that's who his wrath is vented against. So in the middle of some of the most uh, wrathful passages, like Lamentations, judgmental passages, you find incredible words to the remnant, the few who are faithful right there. And so God is always a God of joy toward his people, always a God that's a loving God. And so Galatians 5 gives us a glimpse of who God is, and it also gives us a glimpse of who we are. So when I was in Cambodia, the students were really captured. I just mentioned casually, not knowing this would take up a a whole session, 2 Corinthians 5, which we've talked about, verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, they're part of the new creation. The old is what? gone, no longer exists. The new is here. When the world thinks of hope, they think of possibility. When we think of hope, we think of certainty. That is our reality, okay? The new creation, and the new creation is uh, described in Galatians 5. That is our reality. The problem that all of us have is that we're more comfortable in the old creation then we are the new creation because that's where we came from and it's easy for us to get drawn right back into the old creation. This is where politics occurs, right here. Old creation. This is where the school system, okay? Um, there's no question about it as, as we go through the years, the Christianity is slowly being squeezed out of the school system, okay? I'm not going to worry about it. Um, when you look at things to be anxious for, worried about, at the end of Philippians, you're going to see him talking about being anxious for nothing. But yet in other places, like the Corinthian epistles, he talks about being anxious for believers. So my understanding is that we should be thankful, anxious. That was a combination of thankful and anxious. Do you like that? I made up a new word. <laughs> anxious. We should be anxious for the things we have control over. And what we have control over is right here. We can make this church whatever we would like it to be. We can make it a hypocritical church. We can make it an authentic church. We can make it a, an engaging church. We can make it a loving church. We, God has given us that ability to do that. And so let's be, if we're going to be anxious about anything, it's right here with us. Anything that I have no control over is above my pay grade. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about the politics. I personally don't care who's in office. I'm going to vote my conscience, and I'm going to be curious to see what God does with it, but that's not really where my heart lies. My heart lies with the people that I spend time with in coffee shops and bars and things like that to, uh, to have the conversation about who the Lord is. The school system, I'm not going to worry about it. Uh, when we had Roe versus Wade, I made the comment, the Supreme Court's above my pay grade. I can vote my conscience, but I'm not going to spend an ounce of energy worrying about it. I'll pray that God would have his way with our Supreme Court, our Congress, our president, our, all of the stuff that goes on above us. Our world is captured in Galatians 5. It should be characterized, our community right here, love, joy, shalom, peace, patience, This is what should define us because that is our reality. We're never going back to the old world, the old creation. We're never going back. We have to live with it. 
while we're trying to, while the Lord is using us to reach people for him, we have to live with it. But we are a new creation. That is our certainty within the midst of the old creation for the purpose of transforming it from the inside out. That's really what we're about. So don't, don't at all be confused between the creations. We live in the new creation. That is our world. And the world out there lives in the old creation. Let them be anxious for all that stuff. Okay? So when we, when we look at Philippians, rather than approaching it the way you typically approach a book study, which I've been trained in, Judy's been trained in it, several of us have, um, we're going to look at it a little bit differently. If God is the origin and the source of everything you see in the um, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, then every time we see that language, we can pause because we're seeing Jesus right there who's the one that makes it possible for us to love, for example, okay? For us to experience joy. So we're going to look at Philippians from the inside out. But first, let me just tell you a little bit about the story so you can kind of get a grasp of why, uh, why Paul did what he did. So imagine Paul, he's this itinerant teacher going along, and he's thrown in prison for a public disturbance, something that um, they didn't like. He's walking along, and he goes down to the river where there's some women. So that means there probably weren't enough Jewish men. You have to have 10 to have your basic worship center, meeting place. Since there wasn't one, he went to the women, uh, and he's talking to them. And one of them, Lydia, um, a very wealthy woman, comes to Christ. So then he's walking around, and they're having these conversations, and this slave girl follows him around, yelling out, these are servants of the Most High God. 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 Now, I just did it four times. Imagine doing it all day long. And Paul finally has enough, turns around and says, get that demon out of her. He's gone. Okay, now she's normal. Well, now her owners are a little upset because they just took away her source, their source of getting rich. Okay, they're making money off this girl. So what do they do? They beat Paul and Silas and throw him in prison. Okay, yeah, I've never been beat. Now, I was in the Navy before I came to Christ, so I've been in fights and all that. And um, it's not fun. I've never been beat, though, and thrown in prison, so I don't know what that's like. So they're in prison, and uh, they're very aware that God is sovereign. So they're singing songs. They're in prison singing songs. Their feet are in stocks, okay? Uh, The jailer was told, put them in the darkest, deepest part of the prison and make sure they do not get out. So they beat them, throw them in prison, and they're singing praises to the Lord. And all the prisoners are listening. Midnight, there's a big earthquake, and the doors fall off the prison. So the jailer comes out, and uh, in, under, in the times of the Roman Empire, the jailer was responsible for the prisoners. If anyone escaped, then he would have to fulfill their punishment or even be executed for that. So he walks out. It's the middle of the night. They don't have lights like we do, and the doors are off the jail. So what does he do? He grabs his sword and gets ready to kill himself. And Paul goes, hey, 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 stop, stop, stop. Wait, wait, wait. We're all here. Don't do that. Okay. Now, he's not quite sure what happened, but he just witnessed a miracle because none of his gods 
would do that. By the way, when the big earthquake happened in Nepal, our church sent a lot of money as well as other churches. We carried it over there. You know what the Christians did with the money? The earthquake happened, some of you have heard me say this, during church on Saturday. I don't know of any Christians who died. Their homes all collapsed. So what they did with the money was they rebuilt their Hindu neighbors' homes, not their homes. I still have friends living in lean-tos five years later. And what they said to their Hindu neighbors was, uh, our God protected us. Where were your gods? And they planted five new churches, which are full. Okay? They understood the sovereignty of God was at work. And that's what happened with Paul and Silas. They're in prison. And so uh, uh, that's why they're singing praise songs. They could be complaining. That they're not. And so the Philippian jailer comes out, and Paul says that we're all here. He runs, he gets a lamp, and he says, they're all there. I'm not going to die. And he falls down on his knees and says, what do I need to do to be saved? He witnessed the power of the true God, the one true living God, not the idol sitting on the shelves in his house. And Paul said, believe in Jesus. It's that simple. So he baptizes them. Okay, now the surprise in the story. This is how God does this. If any of us crafted how God's going to work in the world, we'd never come up with these stories uh, of how God's going to display what I consider to be the beauty of who Jesus truly is. Okay? Um, Paul's a Roman citizen. And he's writing to a city that was a very important Roman colony. They had been given Roman citizenship in 42 B.C., when Octavian um, defeated the two assassins who killed uh, Julius Caesar. So the, many of the military, they gave them the land to say thank you, and they settled there, and they gave them citizenship. That was priceless. Paul was born a citizen, and so anyway, he understands citizenship. Most of the Roman Empire didn't have citizenship, so this is a real gift. This is the one book where he talks about citizenship, by the way, because they understood it. Okay, for a Roman citizen... Uh, you cannot beat a Roman citizen. Not without law, due process. Punishment was death. So Paul, so the, the, this brand new Christian jailer, the uh, city leaders say, okay, tell them they can leave now. They paid their price. And Paul says, yeah, I don't think so. He conveniently failed to disclose the fact while they're beating him that he's a Roman citizen. He now owns them. <laughs> it's one of the great stories in the Bible, the reversal of fortune. So he says, yeah, I don't think so. Uh, is it lawful to beat a Roman citizen without due process? In other words, you owe me your very life. Let them come personally escort me out of town. <laughs> I love it. And so he goes to uh, Lydia's home, says something to the believers there, and goes on his way. Um, and that's how God began the journey of of revealing who Christ is. Uh, Philippi was a large, a large colony. It was a very large city, very uh, famous one. And so you have this little town. So here's what happens. At one end, you have Lydia, a wealthy woman. You may have, there's a chance that the teenage girl who he drove out the demon would have turned. And then you have the Philippian jailer. These three, not three people that you would meet in this city. And that's how God formed the church and their friends. That's how God does it. He reaches the most unlikely people who do the most incredible things. So that's kind of the backstory to this. 
Now, when Paul starts writing, he's going to, we're going to go through chapter 1, and it's going to be fast. The camp's going to read one verse at a time and make a comment, because I want to look at it from the inside out. If Jesus is truly loving or affectionate, or you fill in the blank, we expect to see that language, because this is who we are. So you have to get used to this idea. We are part of the new creation. The world is part of the old creation. So whatever Paul's about to say is our reality, even if we don't, even if we struggle to believe it. Uh, and that's, that's part of the transformation process is learning that this is our reality It's already guaranteed. We're already experiencing it, and we're learning how to enjoy it more. So when we read through this, remember that we can make this church whatever we want it to be. When I was in India two weeks ago teaching, uh, I had a student. His legs didn't work. He was born that way. They just didn't work. He had to drag them. So he he wore pants, and he he, uh, sewed on uh, canvas, because he, he walks on his hands and drags his feet behind him across rocks and dirt and rough ground and, you know, whatever it is. I mean, you think of where your shoes go? Well, that's where he went with his hands. So his hands are callous from walking, all right, like this. That's how he walks. Uh, he was a great student, just very engaged, loves the Lord, humble, sweet as could be. I had so much fun talking to him. He was born that way. So he has a little motorized, kind of like a uh, tricycle, a three-wheeler, to get to his house. They offered to get him a wheelchair, and he said no. Is that kind of puzzling? No. Why? Well, he has a ministry to uh, Hindus, disfigured Hindus. You see the bottom caste in Hinduism? Many of them are disfigured on purpose. They're missing arms and legs, things like that. And so uh, he has a big ministry, 60 or 70, to these Hindu people. And he said, they can't afford a wheelchair, so I don't want one. I don't want what they don't have. I want to live life the way they live it so they'll come to Christ. So every day, he, he, you know, he walks down, he pulls himself down, dragging his feet down there. Sides of his shoes are all worn. Climbs the steps into the classroom, climbs up to his chair, pulls out his backpack with his paper, and he's ready to go and learn. That's somebody who understands sovereignty and has a higher purpose than living life here. So then I get to Cambodia, and I'm teaching all this past week in Cambodia. We go down and spend a day in the slums looking around. Uh, it's remarkable, just remarkable what people live with. They're, uh, most of them, they're, they, they kind of have a piece of canvas over them, and they just put boards down. That's their floor. And they have a bed, and the whole family sleeps on the bed. And right now, it's in the rainy season, and the floor's underwater. So they, they have to walk around in the water, scum and you know trash everywhere in the water, mosquitoes. And the family just sits on the bed because there's nothing, no place to sit. And so this, these are the slums in uh, Poipet Camp. Cambodia. And so um, right in the middle of the slums, they didn't tell me this was going to happen. They wanted to surprise me. There's this Christian school. One of the Cambodians said the only way to change the slums is to live like them. So they, they moved there. And they lived there, right in the middle of the slums, and they built a Christian school. 
They have around 80 or so students. They're almost all Buddhists. Cambodia is a Buddhist country. Buddhism is very syncretistic, so their family's fine if you want to study Christianity. So all these kids are growing up learning about Christ. And that's where they live, right down there. They have a view of sovereignty that is spectacular. And they have the faith and the courage that is beyond what, what many of us see. Um, and I would like to think that if I was in a place like that, I would do something like that, that uh, my courage would be that strong. We're going to hear about courage in here in just a minute. Uh, they have a view of sovereignty that this place is not my home, this world. The earth is, yes, but not the world's system. And so their view of sovereignty and the courage that goes with it and the faith is what we share in common. We just do it differently than they do it. All right? Uh, It was a spectacular trip to see this. I've seen it many times, but to see it again just reminded me. So as we work down through here, I'm going to go very quickly, and all these words are going to say the same thing. They all originate with Jesus, and they show you how beautiful he really is because this each of these are the gift that he brings to us and gives to us and then we get to if we want to as a church make this the defining characteristics of who we are so the love of jesus is what makes everything we do possible starting in verse three i thank my god um, think about relationships and the joy that comes from it I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Why? You expect him to say because of what Christ has done. No, because of your partnership in the gospel. This is relationship from the first day until now. Being, well, I'll come to verse 6 in a minute. He's praying with joy because of the partnership. I couldn't wait to get back um, to fly home, which is what I was doing the last two days. Because... Uh, I wanted to see you because you bring me joy. I experience joy when I walk through these doors and see all of you uh, because we're in the partnership together. And so the very first thing we see is that we can now experience true joy in relationships and working together. How often do you see that? Think about our divided governments. Think about that. Think about all the things in our society that we're concerned about. Where do you see this joy in partnering together? See how unique and wonderful this is? Then in verse 6, think about the faithfulness of Jesus. Being confident of this, that he, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What he started with you is not over. We are part of the new reality, but we're moving. We're growing. We're being transformed. And so now we can have confidence in his faithfulness. Paul talks in Romans, I think, about the faithfulness of Jesus is what brought about our own salvation because of his willingness to die on the cross. And so we can have confidence because of who he is, what he's doing with us. Remember, he didn't come to judge the world. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to bring life. That's what he says in John. And so that's what we do. We give life to people. We don't judge people. We don't criticize people. We don't condemn people. We don't shame people. We love them. That's why when we had Roe versus Wade, I asked you, considering the abortion topic, 
I said, whatever your theological conviction is, I'm not asking you to give up on that. If you want to know what my theological conviction is on abortion, we can have coffee and I'll tell you. But what I asked you to do was to sacrifice for the sake of relationship. I guarantee you the person sitting right next to you right now has at least one theological difference than you do somewhere. Okay, so I asked that you would sacrifice for that for the sake of unity. Um, in other words, we disagree with each other, and that's okay. That's okay. I made the comment. I've actually made the comment for 10 years that we have 10 statements. So somebody from out of town texted me and said, well, I was reading your doctrinal statement. I only counted nine. What? Oh, yeah, there's only nine. <laughs> I can't count. There's a reason why I'm a theologian, not a mathematician. So we have confidence now in the faithfulness of Jesus. And we go on to verse 7. Think about grace. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since the joy that he has, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. We're going to talk about uh, suffering a little bit next week, because that's what's next in the book. But you see, we all share in God's grace. And the whole time I'm traveling overseas, I, I knew a bunch of you were praying for me because I kept hearing from you. You kept telling me that. The great thing about connectivity, when I first went to India over two decades ago, we carried a spool of telephone wire, and we strung it across three houses because there was a guy down the street that had a phone. Plugged it in, and it took us 30 minutes to exchange, you know, to dial up and do emails. Remember that? Those of you that are older, those of you that are younger, you have no idea what we're talking about. And, uh, but now I'm connected. All I can FaceTime with Nancy. I can do all that. So I heard from you. And we shared this partnership, and we share in God's grace. What a cool thing to have. What a picture for the world to look at. Then, when we get to uh, verse 8, think of affection. Um, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is who Jesus is. Picture him sitting with a Samaritan woman. I picture him sitting there, right, with a twinkle in his eyes. For the woman caught in adultery, I just think is overflowed with love for her. You think of the uh, sinner, uh, perhaps a prostitute, washing his feet at Simon's house. He criticizes Simon, not her. And so, you know, he weeps over Jerusalem. He cares for the poor. He, he just couldn't walk away. His, his affection and love for them is very deep. And so how much affection do we see out in the world? How much do we, You might see it between a bomb and a kid. But really, do you see affection when you look at all of what's going on in Congress and everything? No, very little of that. This comes from the Lord. Verse 9, okay, 9 and 10, think about his love. This is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. His love. We get to experience that love real time. Some of you have had cancer or on the verge of dying or getting close, and you felt some of our love as we came, as we came around you. Some of you have lost somebody, a friend, a child, and uh, we tried to show up if we could. Uh, where do you see that in the world? I mean, love ought to ought to identify. It ought to define us, right? We ought to define us. It doesn't matter if you, if you agree with the people, you should love them. In fact, in Romans 8, it's really interesting. It says that, that the righteous requirement of the law 
has already been fulfilled in us. It's passive. It doesn't say we fulfill it. It's fulfilled in us by the Holy Spirit because of the work of Christ. What's the righteous requirement of the law? Love God and love people. Your natural disposition now is to default to love. And if you're not doing that, you got some kind of sin in the way, just to be blunt. Okay? And so that's our natural disposition is to, is to love the people. That's why I love traveling around the world. doesn't matter who I'm sitting with. I just am so excited to be with them. And when, when my first flight got messed up and all the other flights got messed up, pretty soon I'm on another flight heading to a city I didn't plan on. Spent four hours talking to a Muslim. Never talked to a Muslim. Not any of these flights. And here we are. It's from Sri Lanka. I was very curious about Christianity. We had such great conversation. And I just loved to be in there with him. But then he goes on in verse 11. Think about righteousness. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. Boy, that sounds like the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Righteousness. For now, let's just say it this. It's, it's putting to rights what is wrong. Okay? We have experienced that. God put to rights in our own broken life something really good. And we get to do the same thing. We're filled with that. And that should overflow in our relationships. And then you get to verse 12. Okay? Now think about purpose and why we exist. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Now I just told you the story of the two people in the two different countries. He understood the sovereignty of God. He could be complaining. He's a Roman citizen. Nope. I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So when I get to the airport in Denver and my flight's delayed three hours, which means I just missed every connection getting to India, okay, instead of three airports, I had five now to get to, to go through. And it's like, okay, God, I'm at that point where I say, okay, God, I believe in the sovereignty of God. Don't know what you're doing, but I know it's good, whatever it is. So I'm along for the ride. As a result... Um, the, the purpose is actually to, to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. The whole, the whole community knew he was there because he's a Christian. Why? Are we willing to suffer that kind of affliction because we're known to be Christians? In Cambodia, they are. They, they, have, they are. They are. They suffer the consequence of being a Christian, and they're proud of it. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. That's why we're here. We're not here for pleasure. We're not here for uh, wealth and riches. We're not here for any of that. We're here because... We care about the people. That should be why we're here. To love the people who don't know Christ. The old order. We are different than the old order. Don't be confused over that. He goes on in verse 15. And now we talk about what it means to proclaim this message. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy, out of Christ out of envy and rivalry, others out of goodwill, the latter do it so for love knowing that I'm here for the defense of the gospel. The former preached Christ out of selfish ambition. Boy, that pretty much describes culture, doesn't it? 
selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. The more they talk about Christ, the more he gets beat. That's kind of what that means. But what does it matter? So what? So what? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. At the end of the book, what does he say? Rejoice always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Does it matter? No. It really doesn't matter. That's why that family moved into the slums. My reward is coming. My reward is coming. Then, in verse 20, we get to experience a courage. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Honestly, this passage right here is what I wrestled with a year and a half ago when I was in ICU with COVID because I, I was ready to die. I've never felt that bad in my life. And uh, I thought I was going to die, and I found it from my doctor. He thought I was going to die, and I didn't die. Uh, but I wrestled this very passage through right here. Okay, God, um, here we go. Okay, I'm ready to go back. And uh, that's courage. And he goes from there, talking about enjoyment. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body... This will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't even know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. And I remember laying there at the sickest moment saying, I'm ready to come home, God. I'm not afraid. I am so looking forward to rest and to be with you. But then he goes on, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. I laid there and I just thought this through right here and said, okay, I'm ready to go back and be here. So you have this this joy that comes out of this. Then he goes on one more thing, verse 25. Think about boasting. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. And I saw Christians in two countries. This is not to shame you because I I know you and I know that you think the same way. They just do it differently. I saw the Christians in two countries proud to be Christian. Boasting in Jesus. Don't ever be ashamed. Don't ever be ashamed to tell anybody that you're a Christian. Okay? When they roll their eyes, yes. That's sweet. When they roll their eyes, you know what I say? Hey, I just saw that. Tell me what happened. I've asked this thousands of times. Tell me what happened that when I told you I was a Christian or a pastor, that that was a negative to you. What happened in your life that made that negative? I'd really like to hear the story. Man, have I heard stories. Never be ashamed to say you're a Christian. Never be ashamed to talk about Jesus. They don't know who he is. They only have a stereotype. And that's why the reality that we have is so potent and powerful. Because if we, if we continue to build this church in an authentic way, it's going to be a surprise to them. Because we're not going to 
We're not going to live like the stereotype of Christians that they're used to hearing about. We'll be different. Father, thank you for, well, thank you for, as we sang this morning, for being beautiful. Um, For being a God of beauty, not only in who you are, but what you have made, the creation and what you're making us. Thank you for revealing all of this to us, and not only revealing it, but actually defining it in our lives, making it a part of who we are as your children. What an incredible privilege to partner together for the work of the kingdom. Because, Lord, our friends, our politicians, our school teachers, everybody we know in the old order, the old creation, um, they're lonely, Lord. And they're anxious. They're upset. They're scared. They're uh, frustrated. They're divided. Every negative word I can think of, Lord, is them. And we have something to offer them. And that's the beauty that comes from being your children. Thank you. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.